0: Hi, I'm Azilia.
1: And I'm Iqbal. And this is the He says,
0: she says, they say podcast. podcast.
2: (laughs)
1: welcome guys to today's episode of the he says she says they say podcast our guest today is rish tandapani a former banking and finance executive with experience working in europe and the middle east now turned founder and ceo of trinkle a consultancy based in southeast asia welcome to the show rish thanks Hi, rish.
2: appreciate it love to be here
1: really quickly rish could you just talk a little bit about yourself so our guests know who you are and maybe about trinkle so we understand what you guys are about better.
2: So um, I'm essentially a Brit living in Asia. Um, I've been living in Asia on and off for the last 10 years. Um, Grew up in the UK, spent most of my life in investment banking, um, pretty Mm -hmm. much being a kind of corporate dweeb for quite a um, long period of time. (laughs) Um, And then a couple of years ago, set up my own consultancy, which was pretty much aimed to help people deal with things like organizational psychology, thought processes, critical thinking, um, and it's been going well, and you know, I, I love the fact that I'm doing it in Asia because I think it's it's not that common one, and and two, I think the the mix and mash of cultures here is just amazing, and um, that's something I wanted to be part of. And trinkle, trinkle goes a long way into helping those things.
1: And it seems like one of the uh, taglines. if i can call it that of trinkle is you guys are a new take on consultancy could you explain what that means
2: i spent so much time dealing with consultants like especially these kind of big four guys um and you just feel that you're kind of just paying for a name right um and especially when i was a ceo i was involved in these big projects where you like pay millions of dollars for these big tier one consultants and you, know, you essentially get regurgitated presentations, right? It's just someone sending sending you a, a PowerPoint or a key um, keynote. And so I was just like, well, you know,
1: Yeah, there's that joke about consultants that if you ask them the time, all they do is take your watch and then tell you what the time <laughs> exactly. is exactly. I mean like <laughs> stating
2: stating the obvious, right? And and these guys get paid like yeah. shitloads of money to state the obvious. And I was like, well, okay. I could probably get paid shitloads of money for stating the obvious faster, especially for SMEs and for kind of individuals. They kind of want a, a perspective of a big four, but without having a big four, if that makes sense. Um, and that's kind of what Trinkle aimed to yeah. kind of bridge the gap on the, on the corporate side. You know, Trinkle has done well during COVID because obviously some companies don't have the big bucks anymore to spend, right? So, so they come to, to guys like us who, who kind of just go in and give them a quick turnaround on, on results and, and plans.
1: I guess this leads me nicely into our topic of today. Trinkle, you guys specialize in organizational psychology. Our topic today, I guess, also deals quite a bit with organizational and institutional responses to a phenomenon that we've been seeing quite a lot of recently. Mm. And so, Rish, if we wanted to understand cancel culture as a phenomenon, I mean, it's so nebulous as a concept to begin with. How do we define cancel culture as we want to talk about it today? Cancel culture
2: is essentially when a person has a kind of questionable or unpopular opinion and the public just decide to kind of shame that person or boycott them on the back of that opinion, right? And it's usually saved for kind of elitist people or celebrities, um, but it can manifest its way into kind of John and Jane Doe of public life, right? So um, it's essentially this idea that, you know, you can shame and cancel anyone at will. Um, And obviously, given the way tech works these days, Um, it happens much more efficiently and and super fast, right? The way it came into my life, and and this was very recent, I'd say probably in the last two years, was seeing how people in organizations, specifically corporates, start to behave on the back of the kind of wider cancel culture. So there's a couple of kind of ways of thinking about it. One is this idea of sharing an opinion that could potentially be questionable or, or unpopular, you know, and... The second avenue which which we, guys, which we can definitely discuss is this idea that when I was a hiring manager, right so at, at one point during my career I had, had quite a lot of people underneath me, like a couple of a few hundred people underneath me, and you realize that everything that you hire a person or everything that essentially is on their resume is you know the basis of that hire now. There could be things that have happened in yesteryear, like yep. 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, you know, college or university, or even when there were kids that they did, which could permeate into your opinion about whether you hire them or not. And, and that's when it really clicked into my brain. was just like, well, you know what? I'm starting a n- new company. I'm advising startups as well. Do I, do I really mm-hmm. need to, like, change my parameters about how I hire people? Like, do I need to start asking questions in interviews about, hey, did you ever post anything on Facebook that you're embarrassed about or that I need to be aware of or, or you know were you ever a white supremacist or you know some you know, Asian hate crime gang member you know something like that mm. and it sounds it sounds really flippant and obvious but yeah you know that's the reality of the situation and I'm pretty sure everyone out there can kind of empathize to some to some degree of or, or has experienced it.
0: Yeah, I just want to add to uh, Richard's point where cancel culture, there's a sense of moral purity. As humans, we're like really complex. There are a lot of ambiguities and it's just so insane to be in such a hurry to categorize people, particularly the ones that you don't know as a way of showing that you're on the right team.
2: I think that, you know, I've seen this more and more kind of permeating Asia as well, like where where, we're in this kind of, big conformity type of experiment where everyone is under some level of kind of peer influence. And I'm not sure everyone who participates in cancel culture necessarily agrees with it, but they feel that they have to be part of it mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. to, you know, be on that bandwagon or, or, yeah. or for them, you know, to prevent themselves being canceled. I guess
1: we're on the same page about what the term cancel culture means, about the connotations behind it. We we do agree that the connotations are negative. It refers to this set of mob mentality and actions being taken as a group there are a few things about this topic that bugs me okay so let's start at the beginning i guess cancel culture the term itself started popping up i guess in the last few years apparently 2016 2017 it it made its way from tumblr to twitter and it was used in the context of problematic celebrities like rish you were mentioning earlier and google started registering a huge uptick in the search results for the term because i guess we were in the middle of the trump years i guess cancel culture started popping up in response to a huge number of the violations we saw among public personalities and so rish are how sure are we that cancel culture isn't just a reactionary force in it of itself to the excesses of personalities being cancelled because what in the past two years we've had very indefensible figures getting canceled, like Harvey Weinstein. I mean, this was part of the Me Too movement. Is cancel culture really as much of a boogeyman as people are making cancel culture out to it's be? It's not a
2: coincidence that things like Trump, transgenderism, um, Black Lives Matters, all these type of social evolutionary events have mm-hmm. happened at the same time. Wokeism has happened at the same time as cancel culture has taken off as a concept, right? So I think there's definitely an alignment of factors that have caused cancel culture to kind of propagate this this social evolution that we're going through. But I also feel that, in my opinion, that technology has just just exacerbated it, right? Technology has been able to translate what is essentially a social evolution that would historically have taken many, many years um, or, or generations to take place, but it can happen in a matter of days and weeks now. And I'm not necessarily sure it's bad, right? My, my, my view on cancel culture, the, the underlying drivers of why you may cancel someone are valid, right? But the actual canceling act itself is the, the problem I have. If I give you guys an example, like a 10-year-old cousin goes to school and shouts some level of abuse, whether racial, sexual, to someone, you won't go and say cancel a 10-year-old, right? The The automatic reaction to that would have been, hey, you know what? Um, there's obviously some underlying reasons why they've said that, let's analyze them, let's try to reform, educate, yeah. these type of things. Mm. So, you know, if I re- relay that example back to, to what we're talking about, it's more like the, the underlying motives behind cancel culture are true and just. I, I do generally believe that and, and Me Too showed that, right? Um, but ultimately, how we then translate our ideologies into actionable, um, demonstrable kind of things that we do is what's worrying me. Azilia kind of hinted at this at the beginning, you know, right? as a human race, just we're naturally empathetic and reformative, right? So for now, for us to just kind of say, you know what, we're not going to even bother crossing that educationary, ref- uh, reformative, empathetic hur- hurdle, and instead we're just going to kind of cancel people, that is my major concern of why a good concept can be acting in a really, really bad way. And, and that's what worries me, because it's not like I said, in the Middle Ages, you know, you'd have to go through kind of a level of due process, you'd have to go through some kind of town hall, or even 20 years ago, you'd probably have to go through a union yeah. or some some level of HR department in an organization or whatever. Yeah. Now we don't have to do that. You know, if I, if I want to talk shit about Azealia tonight, I can talk shit about Azealia tonight. And there's no re- repercussions mm. for me to do that. Right. <laughs> and, and then, ob- and- I mean, obviously, I would probably join in <laughs>
0: No, but that's true. This call-out culture is founded on noble principles, right? The voiceless. Thanks to the internet, everyone now has a voice. And that has been helpful for those being brought to justice. Mm -hmm. But it's also worrying that the adoption of shunning, you know, is used as a universal tool of activism for harming others
1: i guess the world is forever changed we have all these tools at our disposal and cancel culture is the nuclear bomb once we created it there is no going back and once we have it how do we use it properly and on the one hand yeah it can end wars but on the other hand yeah it can do so at the cost of the destruction of millions of innocent lives so rich you raised this point about technology and how cancel culture started cropping up in tandem with the development of these things that made it possible to cancel someone within a day how much of this phenomenon is unique to our present day or you know did we did it exist previously and we just call it something different then because I feel like the answer to that is yes I guess in America they had their whole commie scare all you had to do to get someone investigated by the cops was call someone a communist I mean here even in Malaysia to in present day cancel culture is primarily a thing that's been painted as a a sin of the left but Rightists love doing it in Malaysia All they have to do is say Someone insulted the king And that person will get questioned by the cops And even thrown in jail It's unfair that this cancel culture Has been pinned on the left And some equally effective variations of it Have existed in the past And have been used by right-wing Or conservative groups as well what do you think about that rish
2: I, I definitely think it's it's wrong to just pin it on the left um you know there, there are enough examples to show the conservatives have, have, have done this themselves um, within their own right-wing environment for a period of time but it's just even more polarizing on the left because they start to eat each other out right and and then they start the cancelers cancel the cancelers and the, the, the re cancel the cancellors and 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 it, and it and it just becomes an awkward <laughs> political tool right so if you look at the america america now um biden's kind of policy now is to just agree with anything that is woke wokeist, right or, or or lends itself to wokism and that's not because that's his opinion. That's because he's playing a political a political game. So I think the right have kind of drawn a line on this to an extent, but the left are just continually evolving into this kind of rapidly descending world of, you know, whatever's more woke, we will go after. Um, and, and you can see this in, in some of their, their election of officials, some of their policies, etc. And just going back to your point on big tech. So, you know, cancel culture has existed from the dawn of time. I mean, essentially it's very directly linked to political correctness and Tech has obviously expedited that. It's given people a a medium where there's there's two major reasons, right? One is it's effortless, right? How how much time does it take yeah. to send a tweet? And two, the anonymity of, of Twitter and Facebook and, and these type of platforms. Yep. And 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 that's the reality of the world we live in. And this premise that now we, we're in a society where it's guilty until proven innocent, that worries me because that is a foundational kind of value of of, of being human most justice systems in the world it is innocent until proven guilty the fact that we have we have kind of turned that on its head that worries me a lot and and the other thing that like going back to your point about tech is we're kind of judge and jury now right where in the past you flag your complaint usually a layer on top that passes judgment on on that that vent that complaint but now everyone is judge and jury. Yeah. Now, the, the, the the Harvey Weinstein thing is a, a great example because he was cancelled. And then you look at Bill Crosby, he was cancelled. But they did categorically illegal things in terms yeah. of the law. And that was their ultimate cancellation. But yeah, not everything is a legal matter, right? You know. So for everyone to be judge and jury on those matters, I think is, is, is slightly worrying, especially yeah. if you're doing what we hinted at earlier, which is kind of just groupthink and being like well everyone's out to get this guy so let's just jump on the bandwagon
1: i guess the result of cancel culture i I think i can categorize them into three separate categories the first category and this is obviously the most tragic are the innocent parties who somehow undeservedly got cancelled lost their jobs to a material degree or suffered through a material degree the second category are the people who got cancelled but nothing really changed for them. And there are a few examples of that. And then category three are the Weinsteins, the R. Kelly's, the Jimmy Savills, who, you know, they got canceled and now they're, suff- they're paying the consequences. So it seems like based on just preliminary research, if we're worried that cancel culture can result in a huge number of innocent people getting caught in its friendly fire, it doesn't seem like there's been that many instances of it compared to the number of cases of category two and category three of people who have either been canceled but not really suffered that much and category three people who've been canceled and are suffering consequences because they've been canceled rightfully so i tried looking up you know the instances of innocent people getting canceled and i found a handful like you mentioned johnny Depp was one Another one was a data analyst who shared this research paper comparing the efficacy of nonviolent protest to violent protest and he shared it during the Black Lives Matter movement when George Floyd was killed and people took it wrongly that he was criticizing the protests and so this data analyst he got fired from his job as well there was this Palestinian baker who owned the bakery and his daughter apparently had made some anti-semitic tweets or posts on the internet when she was a teenager and because of that his business partners pulled out of his store when it went public and his landowner like pulled the lease on his store and he lost everything i agree these are fully 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 tragic and reprehensible that these happened It's just for every one of this that happens, we can point to five instances of people getting canceled who have deserved it or who aren't suffering as much. You know, like J.K. Rowling, Kevin Hart, Dave Chappelle, Aziz Ansari, Boris Johnson. Trump got canceled so many times and he was still the president of the United States, Louis C.K. They still have wonderful careers in doing whatever they're doing. And then the ones who got canceled, again, the Weinsteins, the R. Kellys, Milo Yiannopoulos, Amy Cooper, there are so many more cases, it seems like, of people getting cancelled who rightfully suffered the consequences or didn't suffer anything compared to the innocent people who suffered consequences. And so it seems like based on the evidence of it, it doesn't seem like cancel culture is as big a problem yet as people seem to make it out to be.
2: I think the problem with using those examples, just, you know, off hand, is the fact that the majority of those people who we say have not been affected, but they've been attempted canceled are rich, right? So you look at JK Rowling, you look at Trump, they have multi-billion dollar empires, which literally need supporting, which need their pillars still in place, because um, they represent the future of a lot of other companies. In, in JK Rowling's case, she she's very, very well linked to both the movie and the publishing industry. So she needs to have a certain element of what partial cancelling, should we say? Right? Um, it can't be fully cancelled, because a lot of people are going to lose money from that. I mean, my, my view on this is, yeah, we don't know enough about John and or Joe and Jane blogs on the street who are being cancelled, because we don't care enough about them. You know, we, we care more about Johnny Depp, we care more about Trump, we care more about Harvey Weinstein, and the media naturally uses them as examples, because they grab the attention They're they're much more visceral, visual cases that, that give us a bit more, um, you know, enjoyment in, in, in reading. Yep. It's also another interesting thing to what you view as being canceled, because for me, you know, I'm not a multi-billionaire, so losing millions to me is probably going to make net zero years, right? <laughs> It's like, I don't have those millions. <laughs> it, it doesn't make a difference. Right. But like, if, if, if someone goes and says, hey, don't go to Rich and Trinkle for business because, you know what, he's just this kind of anti-Semitic racist or whatever it is they make yep. up about me, then there's a value. My value is a question. So I, I think for each and every individual, there is a, a threshold or a, a a specific parameter of cancelling that really does hurt mm-hmm. them or does get mm-hmm. to them, right? And, I mean, a bit of a tangent but kind of linked is we live in this entire world where kind of mental health is this kind of new buzzword yeah. right and and it's come to the fore so i mean you can't put a value on that i mean if, if i say well okay my business is still intact but i'm depressed yeah. and i'm suicidal well that's what cancelling has led to me right and i'm a bit kind of guarded about kind of how i feel about that because i, I think it's, it's it's a bit like bullying you can't really envisage that and plan ahead for that so like i said the the grounds on which you wish to cancel someone can can be can be whatever you want you know but the actual cancelling itself needs to go yeah. through some level of due process right but i also just think there's a reality of you know fighting the battles that we know we can win right and i think this brings me on to my my kind of next point which is, is I this new idea of my <laughs> right, truth yeah, yeah, yeah. right so whatever someone says is their truth you can't question right and i think while going back to your point one of the reasons a lot of people haven't been cancelled is because part of them is something that we don't want to argue about. So, you know, if it it was someone who was a racist, but also a domestic uh, violence, uh, uh, abused domestic violence person, you know, we don't want to bring up the fact that they're racist because then we have to deal with the fact that they were abused or domestically abused at some point in their life. And I think there's this kind of um, a bit of imbalance going on at the moment in how people, kind of who they push the cancelling towards.
1: So I guess you've made it clear that the worry here is... The repercussions of cancel culture on normal people so on that note Rish there's been quite a bit of discussion about the effects of cancel culture in academia and there have been a few surveys that have been conducted on uh, academics I think In the UK and the US, there was one organization, the Heterodox Academy, that did a survey of 445 academics. And 59.9% said they were very to extremely worried about having their reputations tarnished if they were to share their opinions on a controversial issue. And let's say someone holds the opinion that white people are physically superior to people of color. For example, let's just say, how bad is it for the world that they're being
2: shamed into never sharing that opinion? This goes back to this idea, you know, who is the actual victim of cancel culture? Because to me, it's not the individual, right? The actual victim of cancel culture is the idea that there may be a series of unshared ideas out there. Now, granted, a lot of those ideas could be horseshit. And, (laughs) like, didn't want to give a personal experience, but I will. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Sorry (laughs) we made you go there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, like, when I was back in the UK, I went to a you know, big independent school, 95% white boys, um, white Caucasian guys, um, and, you know, it was a bit of a sports school, and I was kind of literally the only non-white in my rugby team, and when I went to play against other schools, that brought a hell of a lot of racial abuse towards me, okay. right, and, and if... So those guys who were racially abusing me at the age of 14 or 15, I mean, that was the culture of England at the time in kind of the the mid, late 90s, early 2000s, right? And I'm not saying that those views were right. They were obviously like heinous and wrong, but I'm pretty sure those guys didn't know at the time or were being told at the time to use this as a tactic to get into my head. And I can really remember some really clear-cut examples of just, just, just direct, just blatant racism, which also, to be honest, as a sixteen-year-old, I didn't really process at the time because you know I wasn't that smart, and <laughs> kind of just just thought, you know what, it, it is what it is, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm the only white one on the pitch. I'm, I'm the only non-white one on the pitch, so maybe they've got a point. And so this this goes back to this idea of kind of moral moral kind of relativism, where we we don't, you know, the the our our morals and our our views on society in the past do not necessarily represent where we are now, and definitely won't represent we are, where we are in the future. And I think this is really important because, you know, what is woke now may not be woke in 10 years time, may not be woke, you know, in, in 30 years time, and definitely wasn't woke 30 years ago. So we need to, this is where the judge-juror kind of analogy comes in, because we can't afford to be judge and juror, because if we did, and we're basing everything on today's timeline and today's today's moral standard and this gold standard of of of, um you know values and ethics you know we're going to be kind of in 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 deep shit because you know there's a lot of people out there who are trying their best to reform right and 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 our entire kind of prison system globally is based on this idea that people can change and reform right otherwise everyone would just probably be getting sentenced to death yeah right and and if if, and you know, really horrible analogy to use, and but if a rapist who's kind of raped 30, 40 girls, that our legal system has judged him to only have 20 years in prison because he could potentially reform and come back into public, you know, whether that's right or wrong is, is a difference, it's a problem with the legal system. Yeah, but if we are able to forgive and forget that type of individual from a legal standpoint, why the hell can't we forgive someone for just a bad tweet, right? Or a, a ridiculously just flippant slip of the tongue or, or just an idea that is different to what the majority of people think. And, you know, your really great point on the heterodox Academy guys, because these guys are supposed to be the kind of backbone of, of kind of modern education and, and pioneering this new wave of education that, that allows three free thinking and discourse and all these, you know, 21st century ideals that we think we have, but actually those guys are shit scared because end of the day, they need to go look after their kids and their wife and you know they can't afford to take a chance with their salary right like, malaysia is a really good example of this because t- there's a certain amount of government control in malaysia and, and and there's a certain amount of passiveness from the people right let's just put it like that and yeah and eventually we're going to get higher on that curve and we're going to have to come to a, to a decision of you know do we want to be in in a in a society where we promote conversation even if they're difficult conversations or do we want to be in a society that just says you know what? Screw the difficult conversations. Let's just, just let's just go with um, one train of, train of thought. And you know, I see. I, I I hate to single out countries, but I see a bit of the ladder in Singapore. Like it's, it's it's on one hand like this amazing kind of matrix like futuristic, beautiful, multicultural country. And on the the other hand, like someone gets in trouble or gets fined like $100,000 for for tweeting something negative about the prime minister, right? It's interesting that you shared your story with us.
1: And if I may use that as an analogy, as a thought experiment about the kind of society we want to cultivate. Okay, so if we're presented with the choices of a society where our kids can go to school and engage in these different ideas is that necessarily the choice we have to make between that one and then me as a parent deciding that oh I want my kid to go to a school where he won't be racially abused it seems absurd to have to make that choice but it seems like if people are singling cancel culture out as this thing that's creating all these problems it seems like that's a choice we're ending up having to make
2: well I think it is a choice we're gonna end up having to make I mean look if, if I had like a 10 year old kid or he or she comes and says, well, daddy, you know, people are talking about, you know, what do I think about Donald Trump? But I really like Donald Trump. And I don't want to tell them that because they're all just going to, you know, screw me over <laughs> in school the next day. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably as a, as a, as a, a what worrisome parent would probably say, hey, you know what? Just, just ignore it. Just don't talk about Donald Trump. It's not worth it. But, <laughs> but, but that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that, that just doesn't. That doesn't go with my ethical and moral makeup. You know, I want to bring, I I would want my 10 year old to be in a position where he or she can defend themselves and, and, and be in, in a, in a, in a position where a, they can persuade people that they're right, but also they could be persuaded that they're wrong. Right. And yeah, and that's exactly what education is, right? Education. Well, sorry, that's exactly what learning is. It's that, that ability to, to have views, have facts and see them in a variety of ways or at least see them in a variety of um, from a variety of parameters in a variety of directions right the reason i I mention this is because when you do think about the education system you need a a, you need a it's a system so it's to an extent reasonably static and you need to know what you're teaching children if you're going to teach them that there's only two genders or do you teach them what it seems to be the trend politically because that's the politically inclined thing to do at the moment which is to say oh no actually there's a lot of gender fluidity going on and there's a hundred different genders yeah then you know you need to be in a position as a parent to say well actually legally or from a system point of view you're going to be taught this but actually you know you should go and research it more on yourself and, and do right. that so i think it's a really tricky situation but it, i think it goes down to ethics and morals and where do you want your kids your society your community to be from a moral standpoint and i just want my community to be able to talk to each other regardless of 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 viewpoint or direction
0: that's an excellent way of putting it yeah um um, it it can be really scary to say what you think it's because you're immediately labeled as one thing you know there's there's an idea that seeing both sides of the story means you lack empathy but what about you know the only way to move forward is to empathize with the stance or the opinions of people that we don't necessarily agree with like we see a lot of tweets going I refuse to talk to anyone who doesn't agree with my politics. You know, you can hate someone for what they stand for, but the hatred has to move beyond that because it's not realistic to say that to begin with. And the idea that once politics is fixed for life is so silly. We are in a constant state of flux.
1: I guess that's an interesting dilemma to bring up. So it seems like it's a red herring to discuss cancel culture as a moral phenomenon or as a reaction to these things without acknowledging that there are deeper moral concerns that gave rise to cancel culture in the first place. And uh, Rish, is there a way that cancel culture can be directed towards a more productive or fruitful outcome? Or are we on a collision course right now?
2: Uh, I think we're on a massive collision course. Um, I I think... I think the clues in the name right where the cancel is being talked about more than the culture you know if we if we're going to go the kind of george orwell 1984 route which instead of being big brother we're on the wall we're all big brothers and everything's authoritarian then i think we're going to be in kind of deep trouble and i think it's going to lead to a huge conflict where both sides just say they've kind of had enough and you kind of have two kind of split cultures living in parallel right and one culture is obviously going to do more well than the other because the legal system is probably suited more towards the leftist wokeist, right? So um, you you've, then you're going to have the conservatives and, and the so-called free thinkers and three, free speakers um, kind of battling to even have some level of credibility or some level of profession in the world because their views are not um, listened to or even 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 indulged right i think there's just two ways to refocus this whole thing one is education right we we need to get in a position where people are better educated towards the whole social spectrum so what happened before you know the history how why that sociology evolved why we're in that position we are today and how that may go you know, into the future. So that that's one thing. I think the other part that we really need to be aware of is our moral compass as a society. Do we want to be known, does, does this 21st century generation want to be known as the guys that butchered society and tried to rewrite history, or do they want to be known as a society that went through a challenge and then came out of it green on the other side and got their act together? And I think that's where politicians also need to probably get involved a bit. And and, you know, there needs to be some kind of centric. I definitely don't have left-leaning views, but I wouldn't call myself kind of ultra-conservative either. I would say I'm definitely more central-right. But I, I think this is where cancel culture isn't a bipartisan thing. It, sh- it shouldn't be framed as a, as, a, as a two-party problem. It should be seen as a social-level problem where the left and right come together to fix yep. it. We are tending towards the direction where all cards are on the table. We could potentially be cancelling anything.
0: Yeah, This online pylon is a kind of wild justice you know it's a regression and and it's almost
1: tribal if i can follow up with another question there seems to be this uh, perception of cancel culture now as a regressive force. And earlier in the episode, Rich, you mentioned cancel culture started off with noble intentions. And if cancel culture has primarily been used in the past few years by people who didn't have the voice you know, to bring their grievances through official channels like the legal system or their companies, and all they can do is voice it out on their Twitter feed. And we want to pull the brakes on this. How do we let them keep their voice while at the same time reigning in the effects of cancel culture
2: by going through more systemic channels, right? Whether that's um, health associations, whether that's you know tribunals, whether that's your corporate structure. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong; those don't always work. And you know, this this whole notion of systemic racism in in the states at the moment shows that a lot of people don't think it works, right? So yeah. I, I get that not everyone is comfortable going through those channels. But Azilia kind of hinted at this really, really well. She was, she, we don't want to weaponize everything. We're, we're, we're currently in a society where we're weaponizing pain we're weaponizing feelings um, and that to me is just just horrible we, we shouldn't be weaponizing them we should be empowering ourselves with them we should be kind of being becoming a much more empathetic society so i I, I think how do people get out of that habit I think I think the big technique needs to be regulated I, I I wasn't I wasn't a big fan of this kind of a year ago I, I just thought people should just be able to say whatever they want online but now that I see that you know that's kind of going out of control, purely because of privacy issues and, and anonymous people just saying whatever they want, they want what whatever they want. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm more of a big fan of big tech getting together and thinking of ways of making it a much more fruitful technology, right? a much more fruitful medium for people to engage ideas. Do you um, think that's
1: possible without, without sacrificing incredible amounts of privacy or those rights that we have currently?
2: No, I don't think it's possible, and I think that's going to be probably one of the biggest dilemmas of the next couple of years. Um, you know, Biden has mm-hmm. made it really clear in the states that he wants to to enforce a level, new levels of restrictions on 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 the big firms, but um, whether he can do that without infringing on people's rights is is kind of is going to be a big question. I I think he has to do it just purely because you know the fact that they can cancel or at least ban someone like Donald Trump from Twitter um, shows that you know you need to do something anyway, right? You can't just let that status quo kind of apply. Yeah. My end hope for this whole thing is that people just get tired of this negative drain on, on Twitter and on Facebook and this kind of postmodernism postmodernistic view that we have to have an opinion on something. And I think we need to get out of that pattern of of just thinking we need to participate and have an opinion on something based on this idea of, Conformity and 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 you know peer influence and, and those type of that factors. In fact, there, there are cultures out there that are just ridiculously simple and just seem to get on reasonably fine, right? Obviously, they have other kind of intrinsic problems or or at least peripheral problems, shall we say, that 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 need to be sorted. But we have this, especially in Western culture, there's this over designing of our culture to to perpetuate opinions, weaponizations, um, you know, um, kind of victimhood, if you like, which I absolutely can't stand because ultimately, as you said, as being, we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty empathetic, cool, reasonable people right? <laughs> on the whole.
0: I think it's also like the kind of intellectual masturbation that is available to the West that the East probably don't really have time to think about. There's always this need to like fix something that's not themselves. There is a need to protect these other people who probably don't really you know are not do, do not realize they need protection to begin mm. with. People are way more pragmatic here, I right. feel, in and, and in Asia as compared to the West, yeah. And
2: and I think that just goes back to their culture, right? I mean, like if you look at the the major Asian cultures, the, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Indians, the the some of the Southeast Asian countries, they're still mm. horribly rooted in their 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 ancient cultures, right? I mean, you look at Japan, it's like it's still like it was during kind of feudal times, right, to an extent, right, and 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 people still do things in that way, and I think that's why I, I would love to bring culture back to the focal point of this whole conversation, and I love your phrase intellectual masturbation, because I mean, the, the phrase I use all the time now, which is exactly the same, is pseudo-intellect, and that's what worries me, this, this kind of subconscious, artificial, over-designing and manufacturing of society that that worries that worries me a lot. So I, I I love this. I love that idea of you know us these guy or this this circle of people intellectually masturbating, you know these yeah. ideas just for the sake of it. And 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 I think that's definitely yeah. something we need to um, pull the plug on.
1: Cool. I think we've covered most of our bases about today's discussion. There's certainly a lot to think about and a lot more that we have to leave up to just seeing how things turn out, uh, Rich. Any closing words you want to share?
2: just want to thank you both for for the opportunity. Um, I love the fact that um, the three of us in different places with different outlooks, different backgrounds are coming together to talk about these things. And hopefully people kind of zone in on this chat and it encourages them to just have discourse and talk about things. Um, That's exactly why I started my company. Um, It's exactly why I love being on shows like this, because the more you talk about it, hopefully the more it, educates and gives people a bit more exposure so thanks
1: i wonder how different this conversation would have gone if we had an audience on clubhouse Azelia
2: would have been cancelled within half an hour <laughs> 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 and sure. i would have been, I, I would have been <laughs> done after about 25 minutes no absolutely well thank you Rich,
1: for your time thank you everyone for joining us today on the he says she says they say podcast
0: thank you so much Rich.
2: thank you thanks guys
0: Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the He Says, She Says, They Say podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us or have any ideas for topics or guest speakers that you'd like to hear more about, drop us an email at inbox.hishetheysay.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter for more updates at hishetheysay underscore. We have also launched a Buy Me A Coffee page, so feel free to support us further by purchasing a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Also, so Iqbal can afford to make more digital content on his page and bribe the cops for being an outlaw. If we reach our first $100, Iqbal has promised our listeners to do an entire episode in a tax and accent. We thank you all for supporting us. always. Take care and stay safe.